Hello, and welcome to the City of Truth. Episode 11, Daniel. In this episode, we will focus on one particular book of the Tanakh, or Old Testament, the book of Daniel. I'm doing this for a few reasons. First, holy smokes, the Bible is big, and we'd be doing this forever if we tried to cover everything. Second, only a brief consideration of the question is needed to move toward the big idea. Third, once you understand what's going on with the weird prophetic language, Daniel is actually pretty straightforward. But first, we have to consider an important question about all biblical texts. What about the reliability of the texts themselves? We talked about this briefly last episode, but it requires a little bit more consideration. 11.1. Reliability. Here is where you run into the first big problem that we encounter concerning modern scholarship. The approach of the scientist, which we've considered, is to presume naturalism. That's because the scientific method is designed to figure out natural causes from observations. It has what's called methodological naturalism. That's not the same as saying that naturalism is true. Rather, it says that natural explanations are the only ones that science can consider. We've already concluded the existence of God is the author of nature. Therefore, the suspension of natural laws, or activities beyond the natural, are already theoretically possible. These are things that the scientific method can't properly assess. This isn't a failing of science, of course. It's not a failing of telescopes to say that they can't analyze sounds. It's just the wrong tool for the job. But the Bible contains miraculous events. In fact, our assessment of the validity of a religious revelation is predicated on the idea that we need a miracle or prophecy to verify the claim. They assume a methodological naturalism. And more than that, a fair number of these guys are just plain naturalists. Now, if that's your assumption, then any place where someone makes a statement or claim beyond that, you have to dismiss it, regardless of the evidence. The statement itself is a proof of its unreliability. Let's take an example. In the Gospels, it's stated that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That's an obviously miraculous claim. If you start from the assumption that naturalism is true, then you conclude that it is a false claim. So once you've concluded that there's a false claim in the Gospels, how would you assess the accuracy or reliability of the Gospels? You'd conclude it was at least somewhat unreliable. But this is based on your preconceptions, and not the text itself. This is a problem because it means most scholarly work is taking an approach to the Bible that isn't suited to our goals. This doesn't mean we should ignore scholarship on the Bible, of course not, but we do need to be aware of it. We are not assuming naturalism. They are. We must approach these claims on a case-by-case basis and with an open mind, considering their reliability. 11.2 Old Testament Prophecies Let's focus on the book of Daniel. That book makes a number of prophecies about the future. There is some dispute about the date that Daniel was written. Older research suggests that it was written in the 6th century BC, while modern research proposes a date closer to 165 BC. 
This is, in part, due to the nature of the prophecies contained within. Attempting to explain them naturally appears impossible from an early date. For our purposes, it doesn't actually matter that much. There are a series of prophecies in this book about future kingdoms that will rule over God's people and dominate the known world. They harmonize with each other and inform one another. The first is a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had about a statue. I'm going to provide Daniel's interpretation of it here in full, from Daniel 2.31, as it isn't long and it is relevant to our question. Quote, O king, you saw and beheld that there was, as it were, a great statue. This statue, which was great and high, tall of stature, stood before you, and the appearance was terrible. The head of this statue was fine gold, but the breast and the arms of silver, and the belly and the thighs of brass, and the legs of iron, and the feet part of iron and part of clay. Thus you saw, till a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and it struck the statue upon the feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of a thrashing floor, and they were carried away by the wind, and there was no place found for them, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. We will also tell the interpretation thereof before you, O king. You are a king of kings, and the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, and strength, and power, and glory and he has put all things under your power. You, therefore, are the head of gold. And after you shall rise up another kingdom, inferior to you, of silver, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over all the world. And the fourth kingdom shall be as iron. As iron breaks into pieces and subdues all things, so shall that break and destroy all of these. And whereas you saw the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but yet it shall take its origin from the iron, according as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And as you saw the iron mixed with clay, they shall be mingled indeed together with the seed of man, but they shall not stick to one another, as iron cannot be mixed with clay. But in the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and his kingdom shall not be delivered up to another people and it shall break in pieces, and shall consume all these kingdoms, and itself shall stand forever. End quote. Okay, so that's a lot to take in. We've got our big statue. It's showing us four kingdoms. The kingdom of gold, of silver, of brass, and of iron, which is later mixed with clay. Not a lot of detail is given for the second and third. The fourth has quite a bit of detail, so let's grant for a moment that there's something to this. What are these kingdoms? Historically, we know that the first is Babylon. The second, then, is Persia, or rather the Medio-Persian Empire, which overthrew the Neo-Babylonian. The third is the Greek Empire, which under Alexander conquered the Persian Empire. And lastly, we have the Roman Empire, which conquered Greece. The Roman Empire is here the kingdom of iron, which isn't conquered like the others. Rather, it breaks into pieces, and the people of the Roman Empire are mixed with the people of clay and their kingdoms claim their origin from the Roman Empire. They will become a collection of kingdoms which will then continue until the end of the world, when God will set up an everlasting kingdom. This prophecy is actually shockingly accurate. Remember, the latest date proposed for Daniel is 165 BC. At that time, Rome hadn't yet conquered Carthage or Greece. 
If an earlier date is accepted for Daniel, there wasn't even a Persian Empire yet. But really, that's not the remarkable part. It's not surprising that one kingdom would succeed another. What's remarkable is its prediction for the future dominant powers of the world. The Roman Empire was divided, first by Diocletian, and then by the successors of Theodosius. And it wasn't conquered by some singular power, like the other kingdoms. It fractured into successor states that referenced the Roman Empire for its authority. France and Germany were born of the Holy Roman Empire successor state. Germany was ruled by a Kaiser, German for Caesar, until a hundred years ago. Russia was ruled by a Tsar, the Russian term for Caesar. The British considered themselves the successor to Roman civilization. The Greeks were what we call the Byzantine Empire, which really was the Eastern Roman Empire, literally the continuation of Rome, for a thousand years after the fall of the Western Empire. The most dominant power in the world today, the U.S., is a republic formed after throwing off a foreign monarch, ruled by a strong executive, under a senate with giant marble buildings in its capital that conquered an entire continent and has an eagle standard. Most legal systems of the world today are based on Roman legal principles, from the Code of Justinian. The Western world has come to dominate the planet, and the Western world is a mixture of many peoples based around a number of separate states themselves based on a Roman core. At the height of imperialism, Western empires had conquered or subdued 95% of the world. It would be difficult for a prophecy to do a better job describing the future development of the world in a few lines. To predict that that would be the course of the development of the world is quite impressive. But Daniel isn't done yet. He also provides a vision of four beasts which represent these same four kingdoms, and these further aid us in explaining their connection to historical empires. First is a lion with wings, whose wings are plucked off. That's Babylon again. The second is a bear that stands up on one side. This is the Medeo-Persian Empire, which had two powers in it, one greater than the other. Thus the beast stands to one side. The third is a leopard with four wings and four heads. That's the Greeks. Alexander quickly conquered the known world with four generals, and after he died, they each became the head of their own Hellenistic kingdom. These were called the Diadochi. The fourth beast has iron teeth and subdues the world with ten horns. That's Rome again, and its ten horns are said to be the successor kingdoms of Rome that subdue the whole world. That is, the West. And if you've ever seen a map of all the lands conquered by the West, you'd agree that this is an accurate description. The country's never under Western domination of one sort or another. It's basically just Thailand and a little chunk of Africa. Everything else was conquered or became client states of the West. It then says that afterward would arise another horn, speaking great things, who conquers the world and makes a war on the people of God. That's obviously the Antichrist again, which, if a true prophecy, is a future event. Now that particular prophecy didn't add much, but it does solve a dispute that sometimes arises. Some claim, based on naturalistic grounds, that these prophecies apply to different kingdoms than the ones listed here. But the descriptions provided here, and in another prophecy, leave little doubt. A vision in Daniel 8 says that there is a goat with two horns, who is attacked by a goat from the west with one horn. The goat from the west slays him, but is broken in four. The two horns are the Medes and the Persians. The western horn is Greece under Alexander, and the four horns are his successor kingdoms. This is explained explicitly. Quote, the ram which you saw with horns is the king of the Medes and the Persians, and the he-goat is the king of the Greeks, and the great horn that was between his eyes, the same as its first king. But whereas when that was broken, there arose up four after it, four kings shall rise up of his nation, but not with his strength. End quote. 
Again, it's obviously Alexander and the Diadochi. This aligns with the previous visions. We appear to have here a pretty solid description of the greater cultural shifts of the future world. When Rome came to power, who could have predicted its future? Who could have predicted that its successor kingdoms would literally conquer the world? That Rome and the West would not be overthrown by some other new, greater power, like every other kingdom that has ever existed, but would instead form the foundation of all modern civilizations? The West is the only power in human history to do so. The odds that this is accidental or pure luck is extremely low. This could be explained if, say, Daniel were written in 1900, but it's an undeniable historical fact that Daniel was written over 2,000 years ago. There is another example in Daniel, and this one ties to our questions about the New Testament. It is a prophecy found in Daniel 9. Quote, Seventy weeks are shortened upon your people and upon your holy city, that transgression may be finished, and sin may have an end, and iniquity may be abolished, and everlasting justice may be brought, and vision and prophecy may be fulfilled, and the saint of saints may be anointed. Know, therefore, and take notice, that from the going forth of the word, to build up Jerusalem again, unto Christ the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the walls in the straightness of times. And after sixty-two weeks Christ shall be slain, and the people that shall deny him shall not be his. And a people with their leader that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be waste, and after the end of the war the appointed desolation. And he shall confirm the covenant with many in one week, and in the half of the week the victim and the sacrifice shall fail, and there shall be in the temple the abomination of desolation, and the desolation shall continue even to the consummation and to the end. End quote. Here's another one that we have to unpack. Okay, so there are 69 weeks from the decree of the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the coming of the foretold Messiah, the Christ, or Anointed One, the Saint of Saints. One important thing to know is that time is often put in weird ways in these prophecies. They use days for years quite often. I don't really know why. Since we've got 69 weeks here, that's 483 days, or 483 years if we use the year-day convention. Now, there were a few different decrees that were put forward for rebuilding Jerusalem, though most of these were associated with the restoration of the temple. This provides us with a range of dates of about 80 years. But the one I want to focus on is one that was issued under Artaxerxes in the 20th year of his reign, around 445 BC. This was an actual decree for the rebuilding of the city, not just the temple. The prophecy seems to indicate the rebuilding of the city. So this is basically saying that in 483 years from that date, Christ will come. If we use 445 BC, this puts the coming of Christ around 38 AD. Now that's not exactly when Jesus is supposed to have started his public ministry, if the theory that Jesus is the Messiah holds true. But it's within 10 years, and an argument could easily be made that our attempts at lining up ancient dates to our modern calendar are off by a few years. Just as notable, perhaps, is the prediction that shortly after Christ is slain, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, and its temple, and that the end of sacrifices will continue until the end of the world. A mere thirty-some years after Christ, the siege of Jerusalem by Vespasian and Titus, future emperors of Rome, destroyed the city and the temple. Shortly afterward, a new city was built in the site, called Aelia Capitolina. Josephus relates that before the Reconstruction, the destruction of the city was so complete that you could not tell anyone had ever lived there. 
The temple still hasn't been rebuilt to this day, despite being the holiest site in Judaism. First, the statue of Zeus stood there, and later a mosque was built over the spot. This, along with the others mentioned about the future kingdoms of the world, appeared to be legitimate prophecies that predicted future events. It did so accurately and without any doubt as to whether it did so centuries beforehand. I find that very impressive. And these are far from the only examples. At this point, we've only looked at the book of Daniel, and only in a few places. We can't spend all our time going over possible biblical prophecies, or we'd be on the subject for a year or two. Quote, the glory of him who moveth everything doth penetrate the universe and shine in one part more and in another less. Within that heaven which most his light receives was I, and things beheld which to repeat nor knows nor can who from above descends, because in drawing near to its desire our intellect engulfs it so far that after it the memory cannot go. O power divine, lends thou thyself to me, so that the shadow of the blessed realm stamped in my brain I can make manifest. In the order that I shall speak of are inclined all natures by their destinies diverse, more or less near unto their origin. Hence they move onward unto ports diverse, or the great sea of being, and each one with instinct given it bears it on. This bears away the fire toward the moon. This is in mortal hearts the motive power that binds together and unites the earth. Dante Alighieri There is more to cover regarding the Bible, because it's crucial for another distinction. So far, we've only considered Judaism and Christianity as a block, but is there any way to distinguish which is correct? Next week, we will consider Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah 